0: really love singing about the joy of the Lord and the joy that the Lord gives to us. He just adds joy and joy. He's a wellspring of joy. I mean, I hope you really heard those words. It's constant joy that he brings into your life. If you're not experiencing that, you need to work on what your relationship and your faith is with God and the Holy Spirit. By the way, April 15th is also known because it's, uh, it's Laura and John's anniversary today too, so... Happy for them as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and, do you remember what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine so that people can see you but not praise you. Praise God for what they saw in you. That's what I'd really like to talk with you about today, how in our lives we can glorify Jesus, particularly at those moments in our lives where we get some credit, some praise, some, some trophy, something like that, where we're put on a pedestal and we can take that moment and we can turn it into glory for Jesus Christ. That's what Peter did in the passage we're going to turn to. Open to uh, Acts chapter 3 and uh, to verse 11, if you would. And uh, we're going to be looking at that and talking about the shining of our lights in the world and how that can be a time of temptation, that can be missed opportunity, or that can be a great moment where we actually do something wonderful for the Lord. And we even think about that as a moment that God has given to us so we don't fail to use that moment, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's just a smaller kind of a environment where um, you're given some credit, maybe even a one-on-one conversation where someone says something wonderful about you that you will take that moment and realize God gave that moment to you. Your light is shining. Don't miss it. Don't miss that moment and see how God can use you. It's Acts chapter 3, 11 through 16. I'll go ahead and read it. Remember, this is right after the healing of the lame man. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, He replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through faith, through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, he goes on in the sermon, but we're going to take that chunk for today and kind of focus on that. So, I always like bringing back the... Uh, context in which we're learning these truths. This is all about the early church. We're studying the early church so we can understand how to live ourselves. And we're seeing the early church here doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. You know the Great Commission, you know, make disciples of all the nations, right? They're doing that here. They're starting in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. He meant that literally to the apostles because they'd actually seen him. And you will start where? You'll start in Jerusalem, and then it will spread to Judea, and then into Samaria, and then just keep going to all the nations to the very ends of the world. Well, what are they doing here? What is Peter doing? What is John doing? What is the church doing? And the answer is they're promoting the gospel. They are, they're teaching sound doctrine. They're doing what the Lord Jesus told them to do. Um, There are many today that are telling the church that the church should be busy doing other things, and they're trying to to arrange an agenda for the church. That's not the agenda Jesus gave the church. We need to remind those people that the church is not our church. The church is whose? It's Jesus's. He is the head of the church. He's the one who started the church. The Holy Spirit formed the church. So the only agenda that we are concerned with as a church is the agenda that Jesus gave to the church. We're being told that the job of the church is to try to stamp out hunger, world hunger, or to educate the masses. There are many churches that are into that. Or to work for social justice. That's being said very loudly now. Or to warn of whatever the issue may be global warning. This is not what Jesus Christ told the church to do. It may, some of that work is fine work to do. Um, some of that is good, good things to do, but that is not the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. The church was given very clear and specific marching orders, and we are not to deviate from that even on something that we think is good because we have something that we're doing that's better than good okay, it's absolutely essential we do the better thing, and that is the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of sound doctrine and the making of Christian disciples. Those other things are not what Jesus told the church to do. If Jesus wanted the church to do those things, Jesus would have articulated those things. He knew what He wanted the church to do, and He said, this is what I want you to do. You're going to be my witnesses. That's what you're going to do. And if you read the book of Acts as we're doing and study it, you see that the church stuck to the plan. The church did not deviate into other good things. Were there things wrong with Roman society and Greek society and Jewish society? Yes, there were. There were many things that were wrong. They did not try to fix those things. They stuck with what Christ told them to do. They were obedient to the Word of God. There are times where you can do things that appear to be good, but they're disobedient to God. We have to be obedient to what God says. We have a great commission, and we cannot neglect the great commission. That great commission means we send out missionaries. We start churches in other locations. That means we also work at evangelism right here. You do it personally in your life, and we should be doing it collectively as a church. We build up disciples so we can have a greater light in the world, so we can shine as lights in this world. We have classes, we have courses, we have instruction, we have times of teaching, and all of that is to build your faith up and build your obedience up and make you walk with Christ more and make you more godly so collectively we can be a proper witness for Christ here. The church is doing what Christ said to do. What these early churches did is a great example to us. Poverty is going to continue. The church is not going to put that out. The church has been here 2,000 years. It's, the Poverty is not going to end. It's not going to end in this country. It's not going to end in other countries. It's a good thing to feed the poor, but it is not the role of the church to bring and end to world hunger. There is injustice in the world. There's a lot of injustice in this world, and our hearts should go out to them, and wherever we can, we can do good deeds to help to make sure injustice does not happen. That's a good thing to do. Pollution is going to continue. That's sort of a modern thing, Right? Pollution is going to be there. It's okay to be involved in cleaning things up. That is not the role of the church. The role of the church is to do what Christ said to do. By the way, God is going to remove poverty, and He's going to remove injustice, and He's going to remove pollution, and He's going to remove all of the other things we don't like about this world when Christ returns. Our job is not to try to save society or fix the world. Christ is going to destroy unbelieving society. Our job is to save people out of that before the fire falls. He's going to cleanse it with fire, and He's going to create it anew, and then we're going to have a beautiful planet. We're not going to have to worry about the weather or worry about injustice or any of those things. Our job is to minister the gospel and save people out of a dying world and create a counterculture, a society within a society that people can look at and say, that's where the light shines, that's our role, that's the, that's the job of the church. And there's so many voices out there that are steering the church into one thing or another and they think it's good and they quote a verse from the Old Testament or here or there and it's not the explicit teaching about what the church was told to do. We have to stay with the plan. The church is to live in such a way that reflect the glory of Christ and we won't if we don't continue teaching sound doctrine. Now this here is the beginning of Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. And we said the book of Acts has a series of messages in it, and each message tells a lot of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and God's plan. Many of these messages that are given in the book of Acts are evangelistic, and they have a lot of truth in their evangelistic messages. They accentuate the glory of Jesus Christ. They witness to the resurrection. Over and over again, you will see not a dominant theme about the death of Christ, but a a dominant and recurring theme about the resurrection of Christ. Some people call this second address by Peter the colonnade sermon. We had the word portico, but it was in a place where there was a colonnade. The colonnade sermon. This sermon is actually very similar to the first sermon, and that sermon is called the Pentecost sermon, just for comparison's sake. Both of these addresses are by Peter. Both of these addresses are to the men of Israel, to Jewish people. Both of these Uh, Sermons are evangelistic in nature. Both of them stress the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both of them charge the Jews with killing their King, their Messiah, and, and very pointedly do that. Both have a heavy Christological focus to them. Here, if you look through this sermon, Jesus is called the servant of God. That's an important title. We'll talk about what that means. He's called the prince of life, or some of your translations will have author of life. He's called the holy one, not just holy, but the holy one. He's called the righteous one. There are, however, some differences between the two addresses. This sermon offers more hope to the nation of Israel than the first one did, and we'll see that as we go through it. This sermon also places more emphasis on the needed response by the Jewish people. This sermon makes explicit the need to receive God's grace by the vehicle of faith. And this message focuses on Israel's rejection of Jesus and gives even greater detail in that pointed charge to them. So there are two sermons. And you put them side by side, and you could see, well, one sermon put a lot of emphasis on teaching and explaining Christ. The next sermon put some emphasis on that, but put more emphasis on telling the people how to respond to the gospel. Both of those examples in evangelism are helpful to us. Sometimes we need to take with unbelievers more time to explain to them what they do not understand. At other times, we've already done some explanation and we have to urge their response to the gospel. And you see that happening more by Peter in in this message. So this sermon, also I think we can take it and we can divide it into those two main sections. The first part, which we're covering today, is kind of Peter's defense of Jesus and defense of the gospel. That's verses 11 through 16. We'll try to cover all of that today. The second part of the sermon is him urging the response, and that starts in verse 17. The sermon's connection to the previous healing of the lame man should be obvious to everybody, If you properly understand how God took Jesus and exalted Jesus, then you'll have no problem understanding how it is that a lame man could be completely brought to health. In other words, the glorification of Jesus led to the power that comes in the name of Jesus, and that power was on display by Peter and John in the healing of this man who was born a cripple. And all of this leads to the praise of Jesus, and that's kind of our application for today in this sermon. The the Scripture says that God glorified His servant Jesus. Peter understood that, and now Peter is glorifying His servant Jesus, God's servant Jesus. And then as we reflect on what God did to Jesus, what Peter was doing for Jesus, we we ought to listen to that. And we ought to take that and say, you know what our role is? Our role is to go out there and to glorify Jesus as well, right? So Peter takes three actions here to give Jesus the glory. That's our outline. Three actions to give Jesus the glory. First, he deflects the glory from himself, that's in verses 11 and 12. Second, he describes the glory of Jesus. He talks a little bit about who Jesus is and how they treated him. That's in verses 13 through 15. And then he just simply declares the the glory of Jesus' name. So, he deflects the glory, he describes the glory, and he declares the glory. That's our outline. Let's start with deflecting of the glory. And this is so helpful to us. This is so beautiful in verses 11 and 12. Look back at it. While he was clinging to Peter and John, that's the lame man who's no longer lame, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon full of amazement, full of amazement. So the healing is accomplished. The healing is completely done. Remember, true healing of God, they're healed instantly, they're healed completely, and then it brings glory to God. All of that happened. All of that has happened. And what happens after that? Well, the crippled man, that dear crippled man is no longer crippled. We'll just call him the uncrippled man. I don't know what to call him. He's healed now. He's brought to full health. He decides he's going to cling to Peter and John. I mean, he's probably just hanging on to them, you know, on his arm or whatever it is. We don't know where the friends are. We don't know where the family is. He looks like he's alone here but he doesn't want to be alone so he's clinging to his healers. Maybe he's doing that just out of joy, maybe he's doing that as a testimony to let everybody know these are the guys that healed me. This is how I'm walking. Remember, this is the greatest event in his life up till this point in time. Maybe he wants to learn more. Maybe he's been brought to faith as it appears that he was and he just wants to hear more of what these men are saying. He's clinging to them. And as he clings to them, the the word spreads very quickly. You know, they don't text people in those days, they just talk, and then they all came running, a crowd gathers. All the people ran to them. You're saying, were they literally running? Yes, they were running. It's soon treco, treco, like track, they were running, that's the word, and they ran together and it formed a crowd around Peter and John. So Peter and John are like instant heroes to the man and they're like instant celebrities for the crowd. My, my question stopping there would be, if you were in their shoes, how would you respond to a situation like that? Instant acclaim. Power has come out of you, it seems. People are amazed at you. You're doing things nobody can do. I mean, this isn't just winning the, the NBA finals or, or the Stanley Cup or something. You've done something nobody can do. You just healed a cripple just by grabbing his arm and then lifting him up, it seems, to the crowd. You're, you're amazing. You're shocking to people. Imagine if you're Peter and John. That would be a test of your humility, would it not? That'd be a test of where you are in your walk. Are you really happy you're getting flattered and you're kind of all excited about it? Um, How would you respond? Well, pride is the natural response for fallen human beings, but it's not supposed to be the natural response for believers in Jesus. Do you agree? Pride is something we're to put to death. Pride is something we're trying to get out of our life, and we all have it, and we have too much of it. We think way too much about ourselves, and we're secretly very happy when other people compliment us. And that's that's a hindrance to the glory of Jesus, you see. It's a hindrance. By the way, God works on getting that pride out of our life so we can be a better witness, right? So remember, Jesus said, He didn't say, hide your light. That's false humility, you know, where you don't, you don't do good deeds in front of others. You don't want anyone to know the good thing that you did. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, shine your light. Shine it in front of people. Let them see the goodness in you. Let them see what you did, but not for the purpose of giving you glory. When they, when they look at you and they say, how, how are you able to do that? How did you handle that trial? You're able to tell them, it's not me, it's Jesus, Right? Well, the attention is being given to Peter and John. That, that attention is intense, as I said. Um, it says they were full of amazement. You know, their eyes are bugging out. They're overwhelmed with this. Their ears are wide open. They want to know, how could this be? Who are you two? Actually, verse 11 means that they were utterly astounded. The word is strong. It means greatly alarmed. We would say not just they're excited. They were shocked. They were shocked by this. You know, the, the ancients get judged as being naive and just believing anything about miracles. A lot of people won't believe in the miracles of the Bible because they say that the ancients, they, they believed in that kind of stuff. And that's why they accepted these miracles. But we moderns, we're in the age of science and we don't accept miracles anymore. That is just prejudice against ancient people. That's just modern pride that's all that it is the ancients checked things out as well they they if you look back at verse 10 they knew exactly who this man was the the word would not have spread from one person to another they would have the first thing someone would have said no that doesn't happen how do you know it's the man that was oh my it is the man that was crippled you're right I've seen that guy, you know, hundreds of times. I know who he is. The ancients checked things out too. They would not have been shocked out of their socks if this hadn't been a real miracle. And this wasn't something they saw every day, every week, or every month either. In fact, some of them had never seen anything like this. They'd only read about miracles in the past or heard there was this healer from Galilee. They they hadn't necessarily seen one themselves. So really the way this crowd is reacting is exactly how people would react today. They would check it out. They would make sure. Are you sure it's that man? Are you sure it's that guy? Then when they all collectively became convinced, they were shocked. They weren't like, yay, another miracle. No, they were shocked. And so a crowd gathers. And the place that they gather, we're told, is the portico of Solomon. That is a long-covered colonnade. That stretched the length of the eastern side of the temple, what's called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. Solomon's portico evidently was a regular place where the believers, not yet called Christians, where the believers would gather and meet. If you turn to Acts 5 and 12, verse 12, you can see that the Christians were there again. Um, Jesus liked to go there. If you were able, if you took time to go to John 10 and verse 23, you would see that during the Feast of Dedication, Jesus was walking and teaching in Solomon's Portico. So this is a regular place that was visited by Jesus, evidently, and was a regular place that the Christians gathered as well. And it is the place where Peter delivers his second evangelistic message, recorded in the Book of Acts, the Colonnade Sermon, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we had made him walk? See, Peter realized this was a God-given moment. And it was a moment to widely proclaim the gospel of Jesus. You know, sometimes you wish somebody would listen to you talk about your faith. True enough? But you're going to be given moments where there will be a small group of people or maybe a little larger, and all of a sudden they're looking at you, and you get to say something. Choose your words carefully. That's your moment. I mean, months go by, and nobody wants to hear a thing you have to say. And then all of a sudden, there's that moment where everyone looks at you, the light. The light needs to shine now. That's what Peter did not hesitate. He seized this opportunity. I like David Peterson's comment in his commentary. When Peter saw this reaction, he knew it was time to deflect attention from himself and from John and to identify the risen Lord as the one responsible for the healing. That's what he did. We need to have that same zeal, taking the opportunities that God gives us to teach Christ, to make Christ known, to clarify something. Who knows where you will be this month coming up? Who knows what position you may be put in? You don't even know. It could just happen. You wake up in the morning, you're going to have a regular day, and all of a sudden, there you are, and there are a bunch of people asking you a pointed question or turning their attention to you for some reason. That's your moment. What are you going to say? Are you, just going to, are you not going to realize that there's a reason for that moment? It's more than just about your job or about your kids or whatever it may be, the topic. It's more than that. Take the moment. Deflect the glory to Jesus Christ. Those are, those are key moments. Even collectively as a church, we ought to realize when God has given us opportunities, when we have an ability to get the Word out, we're not supposed to balk at that. We're supposed to take what God gives to us, the resources that we have, the technology that we have. We're not to look at that and say, oh, that's there. No, God has granted that to us. The Internet, whatever it may be, as an opportunity to to get the Word out, we're not doing enough to do that. We need to realize that that's that's power, that's ability. That is something that God has given to the church, and we should be using that. We must not balk at those moments to spread the glory of Christ as well. Well, Peter takes his opportunity, and notice he addresses them as men of Israel. Don't forget that all of these people here are still Israelis. Peter is acting here as the lead apostle as well. By the way, a little note, you know, we hear John's name there. And, like, John doesn't do any talking, but, but John's an example for us as well. John and Peter, they traveled a lot together. John let Peter lead. That means that John was a very good support person at this time. There would come time later in his life where John would be the last remaining apostle, and uh, God would use him at that time, and he would be the leader of leaders, um, and God needed him to be that way. Um, even we read about the, the last revelation coming to John and he was uh, the main teaching elder and apostle at the church at Ephesus later in his life when he was an old man. But right now, he's taking the backup role and I can guarantee Peter appreciated that. I, it's so nice to have assistance and support people that are right there along with you in ministry. That's an important ministry as well. Notice that, that's John's role. Being fully aware of what had happened Peter asks to lead into his sermon two questions of the people because he knows what's on their mind. First, why are you amazed at this miracle? Okay, a man who was born crippled is now walking. Why are you amazed at that? Now, we might ask, that, that seems like a dumb question. Why are we amazed at that? Because that doesn't happen. That is amazing, you know? But, I mean, really, if you think about what had been happening, Jesus had been doing lots of miracles. They had to have heard of it. And, and, and many of those miracles, and they were all to point towards Him anyways, Right? And the early church had been doing some, some miracles. So, so why were they amazed at that? They didn't really need any more evidence that, that um, God was working. Um, lots of evidence had already been provided. And that leads to another thought and that is some people will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter how much evidence you give to them, right? Some people say, I will believe if God comes down and I can see Jesus with my own eyes. I doubt it. I doubt they'll believe. I mean, they'll know it is true to some degree, but listen, the the demons understood who Jesus was. It didn't lead them to any kind of repentance. Evil's just not that way. Evil people don't really want to repent and do what's right. They love their sin. So more evidence doesn't really help them, you see. And some people are like that. The second question is, why do you gaze at us? As if by our piety or power we made him walk. They're gazing at Peter and John. That's a strong term also. Ah, tenidzo. It means the miracle arrested their attention. They're staring. They couldn't stop looking at the apostles. They may have even been pushing closer to, to get closer to touch them. These guys are celebrities, right? You know how it is with the autograph seekers, you know, you want to get your picture with somebody, that's great, get their autograph or something like that. I, w- I wonder how it is to be one of these, these really, really well-known singers, you know, Madonna or whoever, and, and they, they get, all the attention comes to them and they often just soak that attention in for themselves, right? They don't deflect the attention back out must be hard to get all that attention, one of these sports stars that's just absolutely fabulous, and they always win, and people just want to touch them and get their autograph and be with them, and they dream about being them. But they're just human beings. They're just flesh. That's all they are. They need to acknowledge that, and they often don't. They, they soak in the glory for themselves, and unfortunately, sometimes Christians give them glory, and we ought not to be giving them that kind of glory. But Peter and John knew what to do. They knew how to handle this. They knew how to humbly deflect the glory to Jesus. They knew they were just normal people like everybody else. They were not divine beings that had come down out of heaven. They were not magicians that had, had found some secret incantation or power. Brothers and sisters, it's good to stay humble. It's good to remember who you are. Fame and acclaim fly away very quickly. And today's heroes are tomorrow's goats anyways. Peter mentions two attributes here that the crowd thought that might have caused the healing that they had. First, he mentions their piety, that's godliness, eusebeia. It indicates a person's relationship with God. It wasn't their godliness that, that made the healing. There are lots of godly people that do not have power for healing. Then they mentioned the second attribute, and that is power, dunamis, as if they had some power inside of them, you know. You know, nowadays you think people watch too many movies, right? Power comes out from different people and there's all these superpowers. We don't have any superpowers, okay? If there's something amazing that happens through us, it's the power of God, not us. Last message, I mentioned that there are many people, really most, who do not understand the power of God. They're like the Sadducees of old, I said. They don't understand the power of God, Jesus said. They look at the universe and they say it must be 14 billion years old because they look at the natural processes and they do their math and they project backwards and they say that's how long it would take for the Big Bang to lead to where it is now. They do not understand the power of God. They seem to understand the power of nature, but they do not understand the power of God. An all-powerful God doesn't need any time to make an entire universe and all the light connectors in the universe. He just needs to speak. He doesn't need a big bang. He is the big bang. He who can make a universe instantly, he doesn't need anything but his own power. And if he chooses to have a very, very, very tiny, minuscule amount of his power worked through two men to get one man to stand up and heal his leg, it's not really a big deal to him. But the power should never be thought of as coming from the human being. Peter's point is humans don't have that kind of power. If you saw someone do that, and it was was real, either you have some satanic power at work, some demonic power at work, or you have God's power at work. That's it. The human beings aren't doing it. God made Adam and Eve from the ground ultimately, right? Adam was taken from the ground. Eve was taken from Adam's side, and they were made. They're, they're, They're made of that. They don't have any innate power in them. We're not evolving where there's going to be some power that comes to us. This is the power of God working through simple people. By the way, when you read the Bible, don't think, oh, that's Peter and John. That's Peter and John. They did this. That's Peter and John. Well, they had the gift of healing. That's true. But God can use you in other ways. God's power doesn't have to work through you and the gift of healing. God's power can work through you in other ways. And God can use you. You're a very ordinary person, and that's all that God needs. It's His power, not your power. When when God told Moses, go to Egypt and deliver my people, Moses started talking about all of his inadequacies, namely his talking and his mouth. And God just simply said, I'll be with your mouth. And when Moses didn't believe that, it wasn't because of a poor self-image. God got angry at him and said, you just aren't trusting me. You're not believing that I can use you. Well, Peter and John believed that they could be used. The power did not come from them. But when, when the power went out and they saw the people misunderstand and they got all the acclaim, they directed their eyes to Jesus. And that's what he does next. He describes the glory of Jesus in verses 13 through 15. That's our second point. He describes the glory of Jesus. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus. Notice the emphasis on the glory that God gives. Has glorified His servant, Jesus. Gives the title for God here, right? Actually, this is a title used that God uses for Himself back in Exodus chapter 3 verses 16 and 15 at the burning bush. When He's there with Moses, He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs. These are the ones in whom all the people Peter is talking to right there, their faith is based upon their lives. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation among other nations. Isaac is the child of promise. Jacob is the one from whom the... the, The name of the nation comes, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and his 12 sons formed the 12 tribes of Israel. If you want to know how the name of Jesus has this kind of power to work, this miracle, it is because the God of your fathers glorified His servant, Jesus. Jesus was God's servant, and God therefore glorified His servant. It wasn't our power, it was the power of Jesus. Jesus has been glorified. Jesus' power is at work. John Stott says the power was Christ's, the hand of healing was Peter's. Jesus was glorified by God because Jesus was the servant of the Lord. Now don't read that as Jesus was a servant because then you might say, well, I'm a servant and why am I not in the same category as Jesus? You and I are not. We're servants of the Lord. He was the servant of the Lord. This is actually... A, an allusion to the Isaiah prophecy starting in Isaiah chapter 42 and working through particularly chapter 53 of Isaiah, that famous chapter, where Isaiah was writing of one that would arise in Israel and would be the servant of the Lord. And, and he would end up being the king of the nations, but he would suffer. He'd be the suffering servant, and then he would be the glorified servant. And these prophecies were made 700 years before the life of Jesus, and so, so Peter is alluding to that, that Jesus is that, that person that Isaiah was talking about, that servant of the Lord. Jesus is that servant, and now God has done for him what He promised He would do. He has glorified Him. In fact, in this sermon, Peter alludes to Jesus' death, which Isaiah talks about, to Jesus's suffering, which Jesus' suffering, which Isaiah talks about, to Jesus being the righteous one. Isaiah also talks about that to the blotting out of sins, which Isaiah mentions. So Jesus is not just a servant. He is the servant of the Lord. And though Jesus was killed, God has now glorified His own servant, Jesus. So the pattern in that prophecy has been fulfilled by Jesus, is what Peter is saying. Jesus is that suffering and now glorified servant of the Lord. God glorified Him. Yes, but now comes the tough part because though God glorified him, now Peter had to remind the Jews of what they needed to repent of, why, why he would have to preach to them. You know, you have to have tough love. You have to give the bad news to people before they can accept the good news. You have to look people in the eye and tell them the truth about themselves, and that is exactly what Peter does as a good example to us. He says, you Jews rejected him. Look at verse 13, the middle of verse 13. The one, in other words, the one God glorified, the one whom you delivered and you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That's pointed. That's strong. And he goes on, verse 14, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. Who disowns holy and righteous one? Unholy and unrighteous people, right? You disowned the Holy and the Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death, what irony, the Prince of Life. Peter charges the Jews with their crime. Really, he charges them with four crimes. He says, first, you delivered Jesus over. The you, by the way, is plural. It's up front in the Greek sentence. That means it's stressed. It's emphasized you You delivered Jesus over. You turned Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate wouldn't even have had him if you hadn't brought Jesus to him. You did that. You arrested him in the garden. This is strong. And then the second crime, he says, you disowned him. You disowned Christ. That word is arneomite. means you denied Christ in the presence of Pilate. Pilate had decided to release Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times Pilate had decided to release Jesus. Luke records all of that in his first work, the gospel. Luke 23, verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, first time. Luke 23, 14 to 16, and Pilate said to him, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That's twice. Luke 23, verses 21 and 22, but they kept On calling out, crucify, crucify him. And Pilate said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. If he's not guilty, why are you even punishing him? First of all, is what I want to know. You're just placating the crowd there. Peter points out that Pilate has become a witness against you Jews. He wanted to release him three times. You kept him from doing that. Not just the leaders. The whole crowd spurred on by the leaders. And so, by the way, in Luke 23, 25, to finish all of that, it says Pilate surrendered Jesus to their will. That's very telling. They disowned the Holy and the Righteous One. The Holy One is a title of deity. There's no unholy in that, in that sense but God alone. He is holy, and when you visit God, you have to go into the holy of holies. In Leviticus 11, he said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's holy. When the demons met Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, they said to him, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. They knew and they feared. In 1 John 2.20, talking about the Holy Spirit we received, John writes, he says, you Christians, you have an anointing from, and here it is, the Holy One. Jesus is the Holy One. He sent the Holy Spirit and our anointing as a church comes from the Holy One. And they disowned Him. They disowned the righteous one. That's a Messianic designation. It's used, the righteous one is used as the Messiah in Acts 7.52 and in Acts 22.14. What does it mean? It means Jesus' actions perfectly kept the law of God. Jesus even said that. He testified of Himself. He said, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. That's in John 8, 29. Imagine someone coming to their membership interview at Hope Bible Church and said, I always do the will of the Father in heaven. You know what we would do with them? So you need to sit in the front row and listen a little more to the Word of God because, brother, you're a, sis- you're a sinner. But Jesus said that, I always keep the will of the Father. That's amazing. He knew He was righteous. He never did wrong to his neighbor. He never disobeyed the Father. So that's the second crime they're charged with. Third crime, they asked for a murderer instead of Jesus. That just added insult to injury to Christ, did it not? Bad enough to have disowned the holy and the righteous ones. Stop there and you have all you need. But they they weren't satisfied with that. Even worse, they said, give us and release to us a murderer, Barabbas, remember, Give us Barabbas. He was a thief and a murderer. The irony here is just dripping, is it not? They ask for a murderer to be free while they insist on murdering Jesus. The murder, not just of a righteous man, but the righteous one. Fourthly, and to bring it to a conclusion, he charges them of putting Jesus to death. Your rejection of Jesus of Nazareth was so complete, brethren. You are the ones that caused his death. You are the ones responsible for his death. The the Romans may have put the nails in his hand and pierced him with a spear and put a crown of thorns on his head and spat in his face. They may have made sport of Christ and killed him on the cross, but it was you that cried crucify, crucify, you cried that. You're guilty, and God knows it. You killed God's Messiah. Now, can you imagine how that crowd would feel? They came in running, all excited about the healing of a lame man, right? And now they're realizing truth has got them. The healing of the lame man was just to get their attention, So they would listen and know the man who healed, the lame man, listen to him. He's speaking to you from God. His word is from God. Don't discount what he has to say. doesn't matter if the chief priests and the elders and your leaders say something different. This man is from God. Listen to him. And you have to decide that too in your own heart. You have to decide when some church has taught you one thing or whatever, when you hear the Word of God taught, you have to make a personal decision in your own heart. You have to decide, that's God talking to me. I know that. Put aside the weakness of any instrument of anybody that's speaking something to you. You know, other people, your grandmother told you something. I don't know. I didn't mean to insult your grandmother. But anybody that has told you something, if it's not according to the Word of God, it doesn't matter how much you like them, it doesn't matter how much they liked you, it doesn't matter what they meant in your life, what matters is you listen to the man or the woman that is bringing to you the Word of God. You understand that? Because when you die and you go before God, He's not going to ask you about the other stuff. He's going to ask you, did you listen to my Word when I was speaking to you through that person? Well, here they had the extra oomph, A, a lame man has been healed. That was good. That helped them. And they needed to pay attention. And and Peter just goes on describing the glory of Jesus. He describes Him as the Prince of Life. You put Him to death, you put to death the Prince of Life, but God raised Him up again. The scholars debate whether that's a good translation of the, of the uh, Greek term there, prince of life. Some of you have author of life. It either means that he authored and originated life or he is the leader or pioneer of life. It's also used in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 and Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. In this context, it appears either one would fit really well. Jesus does originate life, but he also leads others into life through his resurrection. Maybe both ideas are involved. The fact that he is the author of life or the prince of life is confirmed. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. He conquered death. Who can conquer death? Nobody can conquer death. Everybody that dies, goes down, they stay down. Not Jesus. He went down, death couldn't hang on to him, right? God raised him from the dead. A fact. A fact. By the way, when you speak about the resurrection, do you say it's a religious truth or do you say it's a fact? He said, it's a fact to which we are witnesses. Facts are established by witnesses. There were many witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They were very close to the events, and they wrote very close to the events, and nobody could come up with any other explanation. It's a fact. A school like this might say it's a religious opinion. It's a fact. Study the facts, and you'll see it. It's a fact of history. God raised Christ from the dead. The apostles are not passing on their opinions, they're passing on what they saw, what they heard, what they touched, they even ate with Jesus. All of the senses were involved that are necessary to establish something as a fact. And so Peter just gives this glowing description of Christ and His glory. Christ is glorious, He's the Prince of life, He's the Holy One, He's the righteous one. And he just has deflected the glory to Christ. He's described Christ in his glory. There are some people that say that the early church did not have a very high view of Jesus. That this idea that Jesus was to be worshipped and that he was divine, that came along much later and generations later. No, the earliest church had a very high Christology. They bowed before him. They believed in his exaltation. They believed in his power. They worshiped in his name. They had a very, very high view of Christ, and so should we. Now, having done that, lastly, he declares the glory of Christ. That's verse 16. Look at it. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name, notice how he stresses that, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. This miracle was not done in a corner. It was not done way back here in some little tent revival meeting where nobody could see what actually happened up front with people jumping around. You all know all about this miracle. You know the man. You see the man. This wasn't done in a corner. It was done right in the presence of everybody else. You cannot deny the miracle. You cannot deny it. And it is the faith in the name of Jesus who did the miracle that has caused the healing. The faith is targeted. It's not just any faith. Oh, you need to have faith, people tell us. No, you need that faith in Jesus. Faith is not a very wise thing, by the way. Side note. I don't believe in faith. People say, oh, you, you know, you're a man of faith. No, I'm not. I'm actually skeptical about a lot of things. Just ask my wife. You know, I am a doubting Thomas sometimes about a lot of things, and uh, I just faith can be a very dangerous thing. You put faith in the wrong thing, you know. Just just believe it says no. Please don't, don't believe. Someone hold up a sign once in a while and say, "Don't believe." Stop believing. A lot of things are not worth believing in. Most people are not worth believing in. Most causes are not worth believing in. He says it's faith in Jesus. He doesn't say faith, faith, you know, like the faith healers, and it's all about faith and just believe and all these things. It's ridiculous. It's mindless. The Christian faith is not mindless. It's based on fact, and Jesus is a fact, and His resurrection is a fact, and the healing of the lame man was a fact. It was was undeniable, and it's faith in the name Jesus that caused the healing. So Peter is very targeted about that. People come up and they say, they talk about God in some generalities. Don't let them do that. Bring it back. No, we're talking about the, we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible here. Be particular. You know, you know, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus is what I'm talking about. You have to be very specific because Satan has all of his faiths out there. Satan is a religious person. Satan doesn't mind faith. He'd like, faith, he'd like people to have faith in him. But we need to give the glory to Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, risen from the dead, that Jesus, and be very clear about it. And that's what he did. He declares the glory of this. The faith, by the way, that is spoken of here is the faith of the apostles. Remember, the apostles were clearly the ones who believed in Jesus to perform the healing. That lame man did not approach them and ask for a healing. He didn't even know what was happening to him until it was actually happening. Peter and John were given the gift of healing, and they exercised it by faith, And then the lame man was led to faith in Jesus, we believe, because he stood up praising God. That experience led him to faith, and he clung to the apostles. He joined the faith of the apostles. He now is praising not just God in general, but the name of Jesus. And he wanted to be identified with the apostles who were preaching the name of Jesus. And so faith doesn't heal anybody. Faith itself is not the power. The power is Christ's, and the power is in the name. And it is our faith that connects to that. And faith is important, but it's not faith itself that heals. It's Jesus who strengthened the man. It's Jesus' name that should be declared. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Son of God. He gets the glory. When all of this age is consummated, who's going to be the one that gets glorified? Answer, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus. Where is all of human history heading towards? The answer is Jesus' kingdom. Who is the second Adam who failed? Where, the first at, where succeeded where the first Adam failed? And the answer is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he gets the glory. And Peter says, it is the name Jesus that caused the healing. It is the name Jesus that has the power. And Peter declares the glory of Jesus. Don't you want to do that too? Don't you want to be known as somebody out there who speaks up and doesn't just say, I will let my actions speak for me? Your actions are needed, but your actions alone are not enough. You have to speak up. Doing something kind is something a Buddhist can do. Doing something kind is something an atheist can do. If you want to bring glory to Jesus, you have to bear His name with you, and you have to speak His name judiciously at those key moments when attention has been drawn to you. Don't just smile when you get a compliment. Think about it. Now, some people already know. You don't have to say it to the same people over and over and over again, but there are moments, there are times where God wants glory through you, and you need to be ready. You need to... Be like Peter and John and what they did. Be ready to speak His name. Describe who you're talking about and declare His glory. You, you see me standing as a man. You see me standing here as a woman, as a mom, as a dad, as a worker, as an athlete, whatever you do well, a musician, whatever it is. You see me and you think this is great. I, I want you to understand and know that, that I by myself am a miserable failure. I by myself am a lawbreaker against God. God gets the glory in my life because he took a willful sinner and he turned me into someone who would be obedient to him And, and if he does anything good through me, all the praise goes to who? Jesus Christ. Give him the glory in your life, amen? Father, be glorified in our lives and in our words. Thank you for Peter and John. Thank you for the faith we have even to believe in your son. Bless us as we come to your table and glorify your name even more, amen.